1: Today is April the twentieth, two thousand seventeen, and this is episode nineteen hundred and eighty-eight of the Survival Podcast. It's Thursday, that means it's a listener call show. This is where you pick your phone up and you dial some numbers. Those numbers are eight six six sixty five. Think eight six six sixty five. T H I N K. You can call that number and leave me a message, or you can use the Speak Pipe. You can do that by going to the Survival Podcast and looking for the Speak Pipe button in the center column, and use your uh, any device with a microphone, and you can leave me a message that way. If you do that and you follow the procedure, which is make your point or give me your question up front right away, and uh, then give me your details, you're very likely to get on the air sooner or later. Right now I'm actually using some questions from about three weeks ago. So it would be a good time to get your calls in for next week's listener call show. You'd have a really good chance of getting on the air if you made you know your call in the next few days. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? What calls are we going to cover? i got nine of them today. We're going to hear about the urban-rural fringe. I mentioned that in passing, and somebody wants to know more about it. Uh, more listener-provided canoe advice. I think it's good advice, so I'm going to play the listener's advice on it. Um, how do you determine what water rights a property has before you buy it and what those rights mean to you? And do moles pose a risk to your garden? If you see little mole mole hills and little mole tunnels around, you need to worry that they're going to eat all your goodies. What are the dangers of bad doctors? We're going to hear one listener's story, and she wants to know a little bit about my wife's history with a a doctor I would call a bad doctor. uh, Dealing with algae when using IBCs to store water. Uh, More on the challenges of being a libertarian Leo. and, And from the standpoint of not so much doing the job as a libertarian, but... How the libertarian and anarcho and voluntarist communities treat you. Uh, we'll hear some frustration from a, a, a member of this community who I think is one of the good guys. Uh, and then are some now fearmongering the advance of automation? You know, I'm telling you to look out for it, but I don't think I'm fearmongering it. But maybe some people that are <clears throat> more mainstream are starting to fearmonger this a little bit. And some millennials are teaching their kids, quote unquote, hard skills. We'll hear from one who's doing just that. All that more just in a minute, uh all that and more in just a minute. I left some words out there didn't I All that and more in just a minute uh, right now let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have two from Alex Shrugged and one from Southpaw. Ben, I have the Deadly Syringe Tide. I have the North American Drought. And I have tracking the English language notable births in the music. We have Adele, in movies Nikki Reed, Emma Stone, and Rupert Gint, uh, who was Ron Weasley in Harry Potter. <clears throat> this year in film we have Coming to America. Eddie Murphy is an African prince looking for a bride in Queens. That was a funny movie. Big a boy transformed into a man yet remains a boy with Tom Hanks. That was a great movie. That was funny as hell. And Die Hard. Bruce Willis comes into his own in this action hero film. Best Christmas movie ever, for dudes anyway. And also Child's Play, Beetlejuice, and The Naked Gun come out this year. This year in TV, America's Most Wanted starts. The Wonder Years, starring Fred Savage, Roseanne, Murphy Brown, which I did not like, and Mystery Science Theater 3000, which I did like. This year in music, A Groovy Kind of Love from Phil Collins, Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin, And Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car by Billy Ocean. I had some like for all of those songs, though I wasn't in love with any of them. This year in video games, uh, Ninja Gaiden, or Ninja Gaiden, I think is the way you would say that. Uh, John Madden Football, first in the series, and Sega Genesis is released. The CD-ROM is maddeningly slow. In other news, global warming is here. NASA scientist James Hansen warns of the threat of man-made global warming. Keep in mind what that... You know, Keep that in mind for later. Al-Qaeda is established. Osama bin Laden and others of the Soviet-Afghan war wish to establish a new caliphate and disrupt foreign influence over the Muslim world. And Pan Am Flight 103 explodes over Lockerbie, Scotland. 270 people are killed. Evidence later links the bombing to Libyan agents. And the USS Vincennes shoots down an Iranian passenger liner, killing 290 people. It's obviously a mistake, but a lot of people are dead. See, Iran Air Flight 655. Yeah. Um, that's one of those things. Like it happens to, to to one of our allies, and we flip our our lid. But when it happens because we did it, then we all of a sudden flip out and say like, you know, hey, it's just a mistake. Yeah, yeah I remember all of that. Um, I'm gonna read for you. This was a hard one because the deadly syringe tide is 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 really interesting, and it it ties into a a song uh, that we'll be actually hearing soon on the air. And the North American drought is interesting. I'm going to read basically an abbreviated version of both of these because uh, I want to cover both of these today. Uh, let's start with the dr- deadly syringe tide. Hypodermic needles, ampules of blood, and other medical waste and sewage wash up on the northeast beaches, beginning with Staten Island. More than 90% of the syringes test positive for HIV. It seems unlikely that the HIV virus could survive long enough to infect beachgoers. But if someone steps on a syringe, who knows? The beaches are closed as fear of AIDS-infected needles spirals out of control. Businesses along the shore from New York to New Jersey lose billions, 15% to 40% in their revenues. Um, <clears throat> what Alex Shrug says is, Billy Joel mentioned hypodermics on the shores in his song, We Didn't Start the Fire, which refers to the syringe tide. Of course, there are other problems with how we get rid of our trash. In long-term survival situations, you can bet trash pickup will be curtailed, even if we have a plan to manage our own, tra- our own trash. Our neighbors will will not keeping garbage out of the natural source of water will become nearly impossible. Um, yeah, I'll tell you my thing though is what always bothered me about this is how do you end up with ninety percent infected with HIV? It was something I always found disturbing when this happened. Like what you just had all the AIDS needles in one place and threw them in the ocean, and and basically the answer to that is yes. And anything floatable like that wasn't supposed to go into the drink. They they were dumping 14,000 tons of garbage a day into the Fresh Kill landfill off the coast of New York. And they're still doing it today. Yeah. And then the new American drought. Officially ending in 1990, this drought would prove to be the costliest natural disaster in the U.S. until Hurricane Katrina. The costliest and the costliest drought in U.S. history. The drought's area of effect looks almost like a crescent connecting the southeastern U.S. up through the northern Great Plains across western Washington State and dipping down into northern Nevada. It only affected 45% of the U.S. as compared to the Dust Bowl, which covered 70%. The drought cost $123 billion inflation-adjusted dollars in damages. What, what I found interesting about this was my take by Southpaw Ben. He says, one of my readings for this segment is this PDF. And there's a link to it if you want to check it out. Analyzing the drought from Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Division of Waters. Of interest is that nowhere in the document could I find any references to climate change of any type. Now, remember, this is the year that the NASA guy first flips out, global warming's coming. But this is also the year that I'm telling you, as a kid in high school, I still remember experts with air quotes around that coming on TV talking about the return of the ice age with computer models showing the ice caps growing at the same time. Yeah, okay? Any, but, but there's no mention of, of climate change in this at all. Uh, it, It does, however, discuss how, quote, the 1988 drought dramatically illustrates how quickly several years of excess precipitation can change to widespread drought, and then discusses the problem with wind and water erosion, reminiscent of the Dust Bowl, and asks, have we not learned how to control wind and water erosion in the last 50 years? Or our attitudes regarding land and water stewardship really unchanged during this period? It then goes on to say the problems are well known and reasonably well understood. Land practices to reduce erosion may no longer be a luxury but a necessity. Um, and it, it, it's, it's interesting here what, what Southpaw Ben says is that this is like one of the last scientific papers about these kinds of issues that actually address the problem. Instead of just saying, well, it's global warming, it's climate change, it's climate weirding, whatever. Well, how do you fix this problem? Let's say that the, the, the wackos are right, the extremists are right, and, and you know the, the planet's going to warm by a degree. And uh, sea levels are going to rise by four inches. And we're going to have more droughts and more intense storms. Okay, let's say that's going to happen. Well, how do you fix the problem? Do you continuously beat the, 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 the ban to tax carbon, which won't do a damn thing? And let's say it's not going to happen. Let's say it's going to swing the other way and get colder. Or let's just say that we're going to have periods of drought and periods of excess moisture like we always have and periods of heavy winds and light winds like we always have. In all of those situations, the solution is the same. You address the actual problem. You deal with landforms that stop erosion and that conserve water. It is that simple. The, The permaculturists would say we install swales and uh, the the uh, dyed in the wool uh, agriculturalist that actually wants to fix this problem would say we would we would install USDA code 600 agricultural terraces, which are also swales. And, and it's 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 simple technology, it's like moving some dirt around, that can fix this. But let me address the one quote. You know, have we not learned how to control wind and water erosion in the last 50 years, or are attitudes regarding land and water stewardship? Really unchanged during this period. The answer is they really are unchanged, and they still are. Um, when I was in farm country last year, I'm telling you, I saw a lot of places where, you know, pe- people were pointing out to me like that guy over there is in danger of losing his subsidies because he just doesn't give a damn, and all his topsoil is washing away every year, even more than the government's already willing to let you have happen. And it, in, in many places, there's there's nothing being done to actually address the problem of water conservation and soil erosion. Our biggest export as a nation, do you know what it is? It's topsoil. We export more topsoil than any other thing that we export as a nation. And we don't put it on trucks, we don't ship it in places, we don't get any money for it. It goes up in the wind and out to sea, it goes into our rivers and out to sea. That's where it goes. It is one of the most valuable things this country has. I want you to understand that what made this country great, what allowed us to develop into an economic superpower was our topsoil more than anything else we had? It was our topsoil. This was a nation of farmers, and farmers built wealth in this nation and fed this nation so that it could grow. Our number one asset in this country really is, when it comes down to it, a thin layer of soil that we're constantly sending out to sea. And if we keep that soil where it belongs, we're more resilient to drought. And we're more resilient to climate change, whether it's natural or man-made, it doesn't matter. My take by Jack Spirico. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2,000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. And with that, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day.
2: Kirk Washington State. I had a question about one of your segments on Monday. You mentioned the urban, rural fringe, and how that seemed to be a sweet spot for urban farmers. Could you extrapolate on that? How to identify where the urban, rural fringe is, operate in that environment? Thanks for everything you do, Jack. Bye.
1: Well, it's 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 a place that I've always kind of liked, and but I didn't have a name for it. I just kind of knew like being on the outskirts of town type of thing. Uh, it's also called the urban hinterlands is another name for the demographers use. The first time I heard the term and I really kind of, it really kind of resonated with me, uh, it was used in quite a positive way and it was by co-founder of permaculture David Holgram. And, uh, they, it was in an article that actually made a lot of, uh, headway in prepper circles because it was called How to Survive Coming Collapse or something to that effect. I have a link in the show notes to it so you can read it. And David was talking about all different types of design considerations, not just the, the physical aspects of design as to how to produce food and how to produce your own energy and how to stay warm and, and cool and all those other things, but social design, uh, how to set up relationships, uh, social design considerations. And in very early in the article, he, he mentions the urban-rural fringe, and when I did some research on that term, it turns out it's not actually used in the United States very much, hence m- many of us had never heard of it before. But it is used by demographers, etc., in Europe, specifically the UK, uh, Europe, and Australia, which would explain David's use of it, though they actually usually call it the rural-urban fringe versus the urban-rural fringe. David kind of flipped it around. And maybe that's because he has a very positive view of it, where it seems like the demographers look at it as a negative like it has the problems of the urban world but it doesn't have the the the, the cleanness and well well management of you know a good agriculture and good good woodlands of of the true rural like it's you know it's this edge that's it's messy and i mean when you look at it from that standpoint you think about basic permaculture principles where Is the most life? Where is the greatest production of anything? It's always on edges. It's the edge of the woodland. If, if, it's in, if it's a water system, it's the weed line edge. It's the shoreline edge. Or it's, it's, a, it's a bait fish edge. And this, this cloud of bait fish moves through the water. Actually, you know, it's multiple edges. You've got a plankton cloud, and that has its own edge. And on the edge of that plankton, the bait fish move in, and they create an edge. And that draws in the predator fish. And it's always the edge where the interaction and productivity and the ability to actually harvest comes from is this edge. And that's much like the urban rural edge. And, and what the urban rural edge is amounts to the point where you're no longer in typical suburbs or in typical urban environment, but you're not out in the actual total farmland yet. You're not all the way out in the middle of nowhere. You're not out in the middle of the wilderness. You're not out in the middle of the woods. You're not way out there. You're just barely out there. That you probably still see your neighbors. You can walk up and down the street and, and talk to people. And that if you got in a car and drove 5, 10, 15 minutes maximum, you'd be in the suburbs or in downtown. So it's, it's this kind of edge effect once again. And what makes it such a sweet spot, and how do you know if you're in the urban rural edge? I don't know. It's kind of like, I don't know, some congressman said one time about obscenity. He says, I don't know exactly where we draw the line, but when you see something truly obscene, you know it, right? I mean, that's it's kind of like that. Like, you, when you look at an urban rural edge, you kind of like, oh, that's, this is it. And if you've, if you've seen video of my place, and if you look it up on, because we're, you know, we don't hide where we live. There's We have a farm and we sell retail, so there's just no way to do that anymore, so if you look at where we live, and you just look at it from the satellite view, you got, you kind of see like right down the road these big mega suburbs that are like HOA hellholes. But we're just out of there, and we're just out into this unincorporated part of Tarrant County, where there's no city codes, right? And we can have you know our ducks, or if we wanted chickens, we have chickens. Or my neighbors have cattle. My other neighbors have horses. There's no, there's no, no nothing preventing you from doing things that you would think you could do out in the country, but yet you have access to the city, and therefore you have access to the market that is the city. So we're sitting in a place where I have as much freedom as you do in the middle of a cornfield in, in Kansas. I might have more in some situations, but yet I have a market of six million people to interact with, both as consumer and producer. That's 15 minutes away that's the urban rural fringe and and to me it's one of the best places to homestead there's always the danger of urban sprawl reaching out and grabbing you and somehow incorporating you so you have to think about it you know what we did is we looked at it and went would would any of these cities really want us? Or would we, we cost them more than they would get from us? And, and we looked at that and said, eh, we would cost them more than they would get from us. It's just not worth it to them. And we also talked to the people that lived here. Like, if, they, if somebody decided to annex us, if Lakeside decided to annex us, how, how would you feel about that? And almost everyone said, I'll be on the roof with an AR before that happens. I mean, seriously, the one guy across the street actually said that, those exact words. And uh, the one neighbor we have to our right said they're looking for a war if they do that. The guy behind me said, hell no. And I went, okay, this is the kind of place I want to be. Because not only is it unlikely, there would be a huge amount of resistance to it if if that came along. And in most instances, when things like that happen, the people that are already living there, that are living in a certain way, have a grandfathering. So you know, if you were able to do something before, you're already doing it, you're grandfathered in. So that's the kind of thing you're looking for, that edge effect. Where you have the freedom and the open spaces, but yet you're not in the middle of nowhere. It's usually so you're not usually going to find 40 acres. You know, you're going to find four acres or an acre and a half or something like that. Um, and you know, the, the big thing to look out for then is the HOAs and the POAs, because just because you live in a place where the city doesn't give a damn doesn't mean you, you might not live in a place where your neighbors care and have some sort of additional form of government over you. For instance, my B mentor, Jason. Lives on five acres. It's kind of looks a lot like where I live, except they're all new houses and they have an HOA, and you can't even have freaking chickens. And it's stupid. You're on five acres in the middle of the country, but you can't have chickens because your neighbor's bitch. You know they've got they, they, and they live so rural, like if you want to call it that, that they have more more deer than they can deal with. You know, eating their garden and things like that. But, yeah, they still can't have- you know poultry it's done in fact, he lives further away from the city than I do i I would actually say he's out in in true rural area, but with city mentality, so you have to balance those things and make sure you're truly in the right spot in the right situation if you want to be, you know be a homesteader producer, that type of thing. Let's take another one hey,
3: Jack. This is Mike from Missoula, Montana home of the random Paul Wheaton sightings. I saw him the other day. It was kind of like seeing Bigfoot. It was pretty cool. So I'm at the shipping depot. Anyway, had a comment about episode 1980, uh, specifically the canoe question that came in. Uh, one of the things I would say I would definitely recommend, A, TFD. If you're not used to canoes, wear your life jacket. Um, you're going to have some spills, do some practice, some dry runs. With nothing in the boat except you, your paddle, and your PFD on, learn what you can do with that boat. Very important. Trust me, I speak from experience. The other thing is stabilizers. Nice outrigger type stabilizers. I bought a pair from Cabela's. Uh, they extend. They adjust up and down. If you get in a bad situation, you get stuck where there's wind and you got to get across something. They will keep you upright. Um, I have more. Equipment laying at the bottom of lakes than I have invested in my stabilizers. I use them religiously. If my kids are in the boat, they don't have a choice. They always have to have them along with their PFDs. Um, I bow fish out of a canoe with one. Fly cast, that's the other thing. If you're fishing out of a canoe all day, it gets really old sitting. Your butt gets a little bit sore even with a good pad. So I make sure that I have that so I can stand up. Plus you can cast farther. Uh, if you're going to fly fish out of it, it's a must. Um, put some money into them. They're well worth the investment, and they will keep you from donating fishing and other gear to the bottom of the lake gods. Thanks, Jack. Love the show.
1: Well, I, I don't have a lot to add to that one. I've kind of said my piece on canoes as far as, you know, I I like the idea of a larger canoe that has a flat-back transom so you can put a trawler motor in it. It's just, it just Awesome. Um, But I hadn't really thought about stabilizers, and I have to agree that that is a fantastic idea. Definitely worth the the investment. It takes one rollover, and you lose more equipment. He's dead on right uh, about it. And, And being able to stand up in a boat has tremendous value, not just because sitting all day long, eventually you get cramped up, your back hurts, your leg hurts. There's just times when like you want to cast a certain way or you want to like maneuver into a certain area. Being able to stand up without the damn thing flipping over on you, huge value. I'm not a big canoe guy, so that's why I didn't have a lot of information about it in the beginning. But I like that we've had now three people follow up with this. This is an example of the community helping each other. So thanks for your call. Let's take another one.
4: Hey, Jack. This is Becky from Utah. So my question is about water rights on property or land. Uh, How do you know what is a good deal on water rights? How do you know what you are getting? How do you find out? Is this part of the contract when you buy? uh, Does it lay out everything for you? I know you always uh, should do your homework on stuff like this, but we don't even know where to start. Um, The backstory: we sold our suburban home. We're renting right now and looking at houses with property or land and we've seen a lot of different listings that mention water rights. Some of them say city water with irrigation water rights. Some listings say underground water rights. Some say uh, the buyer will receive three shares of water rights. Uh, some listings have even said that you get a well on the property. Uh, some property says the whole property is is uh, city water, which I think I know what that means. Um, We've bought and sold houses before, but we've never bought a house outside of a neighborhood. And so we've never had to think about this issue. Um, We already have bees and chickens. We plan on adding goats later and, of course, a large garden. So I I know this is a big subject. I was wondering if you could give any resources or website listings or any kind of insight on this. I kind of did a preliminary search of the Survival Podcast website and wasn't able to find anything specific. So... Hopefully, this is not something I missed that you've already covered. Um, But we love the podcast and have learned a lot. already had the self-sufficient bug, but you've really inspired us to take it further. So keep up the good work. Thanks.
1: Okay, um, you might not like the answer, but the answer is, I just don't know. Because I don't know where you live, and I don't know what your state's definitions of these words are. Because water rights vary state by state to a large degree. And if you're in, like, Colorado, or Wyoming, etc., it's very draconian, where if you're in places like Texas, it's not so bad except in certain areas. And if you're in areas, you know, in the, in the eastern United States where it rains all the time, it's almost a non-issue. So what you need to do is find out how your state defines specific things, and you also need to find out how certain municipalities define certain things, because city water is usually not indicative of rights so what i mean by that is usually when you see city water on a real estate listing what it means is you don't have to worry about your water because city water's there right so you you have a, a, a pipe coming to your house from the city with water and so you're good That doesn't really tell you whether or not the water that you have coming on your roof is available for you to catch and put in a cistern. It doesn't tell you whether or not you would be able to put a pond in. And you would have to go beyond water rights for a pond because does that municipality require a permit? If so, how hard is it to get for pond construction? Do you have to have it signed off by an engineer or do you just rent a piece of equipment and dig a hole? So you kind of need to dig into all of that based on your municipality and your locality. And I would be a little bit concerned about the city water thing being more broad. Because sometimes what cities say is since we're providing you water that you pay for, you don't have rights to the water that lands on your property because we want to sell it back to you. That 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 kind of thing ha- does happen in some municipalities. So you, you have to drill down to the area you're looking in, what the definition means there. Because the definition... Um, it may be different in Texas versus Nevada versus Pennsylvania of the same term. And and I can't even begin to like at least do a little research on your behalf and tell you because you didn't say, well, we're in Oregon or we're in, you know, Tallahassee or or whatever it is. But I would say this. When you uh when you interview real estate agents, since this is a major concern for you What you you need to say on one of your first meetings with a real estate agent you would be, you know, uh, contracting with as a buyer's broker is, um, what does this mean in this area? This where it says city water. Does that mean, or does it mean, you know, does it mean that they provide city water, or that we have no water rights other than the water that comes from the city? What does that mean? And if their answer is, well, I don't know, wrong answer, new new agent to interview. I mean, the reality is that's not something that you should have to figure out. If you're dealing with a real estate agent that's going to make three to six percent on a transaction, and their specialty is real estate, they should know. That doesn't mean you don't second guess them and double check them, but but at least rely on them for a basic cursory understanding, to point you in the right direction. And if they can't do that, they're not. They don't deserve the money from selling you a house or a piece of land. That's absolutely the case. So, uh, again, I would you know I would start with. You know, maybe call your, your local county uh, government office and say, Who do I talk to? I want to understand what these terms mean. What do these terms mean in our county? Uh, what does city water mean? Does that mean that we only can use the seawater? What, what is the, you know, you might want to even talk with the state uh, DNR, Department of Natural Resources Department. And what is the general policy on water rights in our state? Does the state claim that they own all water rights and they only gift them back by permit? Because some states, that's the way it basically is, unless it's pre-existing rights. Or is the basic rights in our state that the water that lands on your property is your water within certain things? Like if you move it out of a catchment, it has to return to the same catchment before it leaves. That's pretty standard in most states. So you need to find out what the overriding hierarchical structure is, and then these definitions will make more sense. I'm sorry I can't just tell you what they all mean, because, again, each state is a little bit different. Let's take another one.
0: Yes, Jack. This is Bob in Lano, and I have a question about moles. Um, I, this spring, I've had I don't know one or two, I guess, but I see their little tunnels. Moles making their way into my garden area, and I'm curious. I know gophers eat vegetation and make a wreck out of everything, but I'm not I'm not really familiar with moles. So how how devastating, how destructive can they be? Should I worry about them? And what can I do to get rid of them if I need to worry about them? Thanks a lot, Jack. Love the show. Keep it up. Bye.
1: Well, I I think you'll like my answer. The answer about moles in your garden is they, they pose no real direct threat at all. They're not big on eating your carrots. They're not big on eating the roots off of your uh, tomato plants or, you know, eating your pea plants or something like that. Moles are primarily carnivorous. They like to eat things like worms and slugs and snails and stuff like that. Um, they're fairly, fairly small. They don't cause a lot of trouble. The main reason that people have problems with them, it makes me think of my grandfather on my mother's side. He was a good guy, but, man, he was big on the whole, you know, you want your your, your front yard to look like a golf course type of thing. Uh, he had a dedicated well just so he could water his grass every day without paying the bill. I mean, that's, that's how this guy was. And when the moles got in there, he, it drove him crazy because they make little tunnels and they mess up your pretty turf grass and all. They actually are beneficial in many ways, though, uh, to turf grass because they aerate things and they, you know, they lose a tunnel for a while and then they make a new tunnel because there's no worms here anymore. So they kind of migrate through a system and they don't really have a problem. If they are causing you a problem, the best way to get rid of them is plunger traps, which are just the same thing you do with gophers where they're mounted over the tunnel and you got a hole down in there, and when they go underneath it, poof, the plunger goes down and stabs them into the ground and they die. Um, but it's probably not necessary. The caveat. They can cause some problems in your garden because they're making tunnels through root systems, so they can create some indirect, unintended damage. They can damage some root systems and things like that. Probably not enough for you to worry about it. I have, I have lived and gardened where moles exist, and I have just never worried about it. I've had, you know, uh, a plant or two uprooted because of their activity, but nothing that was sufficient for me to really be upset about it. I, I, I just wouldn't worry about it at all. But again, if you do want to get rid of them, plunger traps are the best, most effective method of dealing with any of these subterranean little beasties. Uh, let's take another one. Jack, this
5: is Libby calling from North Carolina. My comment is actually regarding adverse reactions to modern medicine. In January of this year, I was given Cipro for an unusually pesky UTI. I'm currently pregnant, and while uh, Cipro is not current is not usually given during pregnancy, my doctors felt I was at the point where it would be better to go ahead and try to finish knocking it out uh, than let it uh, spread to my kidneys and put uh, pose a risk to the baby. Um, frankly, in hindsight, though, I would have rather ended up in the hospital with a kidney infection instead of what I'm currently dealing with. I've been having a bad reaction um, since the day after taking it. Um, but my doctor insisted the symptoms would go away once I was done with the course of treatment. Uh, this unfortunately turned out to be far from the case. The months since have honestly been a living hell. I've had everything from muscle, nerve, and tendon pain to burning in my chest and anxiety, insomnia, and others. If you look up online, this class of antibiotics has all kinds of horror stories associated with it of people who have these kinds of reactions, some severe enough to permanently disable them, and some who even die as a result. This is honestly not something I would wish on my worst enemy. I've always been a strong Christian, and my faith that God will bring me through this is frankly what's holding me together right now. Also, most recently, I discovered a homeopathic doctor who has extensive experience in treating people with these kind of reactions. And I'm very hopeful that he can help me recover. I have heard, though, that people who do recover from this often have to make lifelong changes to their diet, their medical course of treatment, etc. As I said, this is not something I would wish on my worst enemy. There are a lot of things I would, but this is not one of them. I know you have been very leery of modern medicine, so I was hoping you could use your platform to warn people of these dangers. My husband also told me that your wife um, had experienced a health crisis and had some bad luck with doctors. Perhaps you could share some of her story as it relates to mine and others like it. Thanks so much for everything you do. Really appreciate it.
1: First, let me say I'm very sorry for your experience, and I can hear the, the pain and the anger in your voice. And I played this as much as a warning as to let your voice be heard, because I know when people have been through things like this, one of the things that helps them with the healing process, both physically and emotionally, is being heard. So rest assured, you were heard by a lot of people, and you will probably help at least several people if not dozens of people with your story and that should make living with this consequence a little bit easier because i know that's part of why you called in i can tell uh next up dealing with bad doctors is not as uncommon as people would believe i you know when we talk about how you know don't call the the bad cops a few bad apples that it's it's far worse than that uh but You know, what I say is, in general, the average police officer does his job to the best of his ability, and in general, is not guilty of the things that we accuse them of. I think there's more bad doctors per hundred than there are bad cops per hundred. And I think it's a little easier for it to happen because doctors just believe what they're trained to believe. And if the the medical literature suggests that the majority of people get past circum uh, you know side effects and it's beneficial, then they just that's what they do. Um, I'll, I'll I'll relay a couple things that happened with my wife. The most recent one was she went to an eye doctor, and an eye doctor looked at the uh, blood vessels in her eyes and he said, "There's not that much of a problem right now," but I think you're a ticking time bomb because you have blood vessels that literally had. You know, ruptured in your eyes. Well, my wife went through hell with trigeminal neuralgia, which we'll get to in a second, and had some major episodes with that, which I'm sure her blood pressure was through the roof during these but she goes to her doctor and her doctor says, you know, you have mild hypertension. You have mild high blood pressure and you really should get on this blood pressure medication. So she comes home and she tells me about it. I'm like, so when you went and got your blood pressure taken at the doctor's office after this, this, this eye doctor, you know, freaked you the hell out. And by the way, you know, we had a discussion about the trideminal neuralgia. Oh, yeah. I didn't really think that about that, right? So th- like when all this was going when you were nervous, were you apprehensive? She said, well, yes. Um, and I'm like, do you remember one time that uh, you you had some indigestion that you thought was heart pain and we took you to the doctor's office and it, you had a high blood pressure reading and then the doctor examined you and said there's nothing wrong with you, took your blood pressure again, 10 minutes later and your blood pressure had dropped 25 points. Do you remember that? She's like, yeah. I said, see, this is one of the problems I have with doctors and blood pressure. Doctors just do not take into account that many people are quite apprehensive when going to the doctor no matter how routine it is for the doctor or the nurse and that having your blood pressure taken and your arm squeezed and things like that often will elevate blood pressure a few points. Sometimes a few points is the difference between needing medication and not. So why don't you do this? Why don't you go buy yourself a good quality automated blood pressure cuff, take your blood pressure three or four times a day, tell this doctor you're going to wait a month, and track your blood pressure for a month and then go back with all your readings and see what this doctor has to say. So she tells the doctor that, and the doctor says, listen, if you were my own mother, I would tell you to get on this medication. So she comes back to me with that, and I said, I don't, I don't disbelieve her. It doesn't mean she's right. So my wife does this for 30 days. She takes her readings into the doctor. The doctor looks at it and says, there's no reason for you to be on blood pressure medication. Really? Really? If that doesn't piss you off, you don't get it. Do you know when you go on blood pressure medication? Do you know when you come off? Never. So you're going to put somebody on a medication that they're going to take for the rest of their effing life based on one freaking reading, you pinhead. So that wasn't even a bad experience because we didn't let it be. And she's like, well, you know, even if it's a little bit elevated, you could just use a diuretic. So just a diuretic. Oh, that's 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 different than an actual freaking freaking. Right in the head. Right in the head. I mean, and this happens to, the reason I'm mad is because of my wife. Don't think I'm taking this personal. The reason I'm mad is because I know this happens to thousands of people every day and all it does is put money in the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies and some, some pretty pharmaceutical rep has walked in there, flirted with the doctor and said, prescribe more of this shit. That's what goes on. And if you don't believe it, you're, you're freaking blind to reality. So here's the other example. I mentioned trigeminal neuralgia. If you look, it's also known as Tick-Bellarue. If you look this disease up, you will find it used to be, before modern methods of intervention were known, uh, called the suicide disease. Because eventually people would kill themselves because they couldn't deliver the pain anymore. My wife presented with it very early in her life, very young. This is usually a disease of the elderly. So doctors naturally have a suspicion that it's not trigeminal neuralgia because it's an old person disease, which is complete bullshit. It's, I mean, after when you deal with something chronic, you learn about it, you become an expert in it. We are, my wife and I are both experts on this condition at this point. And the, the story that it's a disease of the elderly is bullshit. There's two main types of trigeminal neuralgia when it comes to compression of the nerve itself. There's some ones that happen with infection and things like that. But the primary problem is demyelination of the fifth trigeminal nerve. This is the nerve that comes down out of your brain and goes along the bottom of your jawline. Okay? And. What happens is all of a sudden it's like somebody hooked up an electric cord to your, to your, to your face and just starts shocking you at random at various levels, really high, really low, on and off, on and off, on for 10 seconds, off, gone for an hour. Next time it comes back, 10, 10-second 10 jolts in a row and then gone for a day. You can see it's terrifying. And then sometimes it's a 15 or 20-minute ordeal and sometimes it becomes intractable and it's days and sometimes it just goes away and sometimes something as simple as a breeze on your face can set it off well there's two main ways that happens when it involves a blood vessel that is the problem arterial and venal and most of the people that are elderly that have it it's arterial and what happens is there's an artery laying against that nerve and there's if you you know an artery has a pulse you can feel the pulse in an artery. Every time your heart beats, there's a pulse through the artery. And that artery just, every time there's a pulse, there's this little tiny tap on that nerve. Little tiny tap, little tiny tap, little tiny tap, little tiny tap. And over years and years and years, it wears down the myelin of the nerve. And if you want to think about like a coax cable, where you have a center conductor and a shield and an insulator between them, just imagine we've, we've worn down that insulator to every once in a while there's a, sh- a short circuit. And the negative and the positive arc. It's exactly what's happening in the nerve in the face when this goes on. So arterial usually presents in the elderly, 70 or older. Venal, where there's a vein going across it, the vein growth in that area, when it's against that nerve, kind of runs away. And the vein gets larger than it's supposed to. It becomes enlarged. And it actually compresses the nerve. Think of it like a, like a small snake wrapping around the nerve in your face. And that, ha- that has a much shorter timeline. People present with this in their early 20s. Okay. Now I'm a redneck duck farmer, so you would think a world-class neurologist who specifically helps treat people with trigeminal neuralgia would know this. But no, 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 no. So we go to this jackass, and he says, "I think she has MS," which obviously is a devastating diagnosis. My wife's freaked the f out, right? And I'm like, what makes you say that? He's like, unusual gait in her walk and some of the, some of these symptoms you're describing to me with losing her thoughts. I'm like, you have her on Tegretol and Neurotin at high levels. Well, these aren't side effects of those medications. So I go online and I'm like, they're all side effects. They're all, boys, well, they're very low incidence of, of, of them, like 1% and 2%. That, but yeah, that's not what you said. You said that they were not, but now instead of, they're all side effects of both medications, and you're taking high doses of both of them, so if it's 2% for this medication and 1.5% for this medication, it's not 35 when you put them together, and you don't know what it is because we never do drug trials with two drugs at the same time to see how they interact, do we? But he freaks her out enough to believe she needs to be tested for all this shit, so they do what's called an evoked potentials, which is really harmless. You look at some things, and they measure your brain waves. And it's inconclusive, meaning they, they find absolutely nothing. Um, they did another test they I think was a, like a CAT scan or something, uh, or an MRI, an MRI of the brain. They found nothing, no plaques, no nothing. And uh, so then they're like, well, we have to rule this out. So they want to do a spinal tap, right, to, to test the spinal fluid. So she agrees to it against my Belief that we should do this because I really knew at this point that's not what the problem is. He does it in his office and he doesn't do something called a blood pr- patch. And we go home and within an hour she has crushing headaches. Just It's not her tridential. It's like just crushing. like feels like her head's going to explode. Well, it turns out that asshole didn't do something called a blood patch where they take a little bit of your blood and they inject it into the site where they do the, the withdrawal of the spinal fluid. And because of that, a small amount of spinal fluid is continuing to leak out of her spine. And since it's leaking out of her spine, that fluid goes all the way up into your brain and it it supports your brain. Your brain floats in fluid in your skull. And because it's leaking out of her back, her brain is laying in the bottom of her skull and it hurts like hell. So we have to rush her to the ER. They do a blood pressure for her right away. And I'm like, we're not going to that guy again. And then we had another guy that tried to help her from there that was a dumbass, too, that had her on on so much of this this, uh, Tegretol that she almost went to a point where you have to have a bone marrow transplant. And fortunately, we caught it, and then she went intractable. And thanks to this wonderful woman named Shelly, who worked with a group called the Trigeminal Neuralgia Association locally, helped me through bullshit in two different ERs and got me into the finest surgeon that you can have to do this. Like, people fly in from Europe to get this guy to do what's called microvascular decompression surgery. And she had emergency surgery the next day and has had complete remission now for over 10 years. At this point, she's less likely to have remission than she was to have the condition in the first place. It's obviously a rare condition. But the reason I explain this, and I actually you know, explain the medical concepts of it, when you come down with an illness that's serious, it's incumbent upon you to become an expert in it, even if you don't think you're capable. You are, because you are motivated now. And if you have a loved one, the same thing. And not about making it go away, not some miracle cure, not you're going to fly to, New, uh, to Mexico and they're going to squirt shark piss in your nose and you're going to be cured. But I mean the actual medical stuff, that you, because what you think is, well, that's what to look for. Look for the stuff that, 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 that's, that's alternative. And investigating it, fine, especially if it's terminal, you might as well try whatever might work. Okay, But you have to investigate the actual hard medical facts and don't assume your doctor knows. And I mean, again, the the guy that did this stupid shit, that went on a witch hunt for MS, that refused to listen to me because thought I was a husband in denial, that didn't know the difference between venal and, and arterial um, it, from a standpoint, he knew that it that was there, but he didn't know that venal presented young and arterial presented old was a neurologist that listed among his specialties the treatment of trigeminal neuralgia. And I think to this day I still know more than he does about it because he's too arrogant to relearn what he's already learned. You have to take control of your life in these health issues. If you can't tell, it's a bit important to me. It is called the Survival Podcast. And your survival someday or the survival of your loved one may be at stake or a, a huge alteration of their life. Can you imagine a person who doesn't actually need high blood pressure medication taking blood pressure medication for the rest of their life? And at my wife's age, we're talking 40 years. Because somebody made a decision based on one or two readings with no understanding that, gee, I just might be apprehensive while you're putting that thing around my arm. And I've just had an eye doctor freak me out over bullshit because he doesn't understand a damn thing about what's going on. Let's take another one.
3: Hey Jack, got a question for you about water totes. Uh, I've got my ring collection system going into year two now and, uh, I've waited to really make anything stationary. I've got totes set around my place on fruit trees and garden and small things like that. And, uh, what I'm wondering is, obviously we're fighting the algae a little bit and was wondering if you had recommendations on taking the the tank out of the cage and and putting a, a good paint on it that's going to stay on for a long time and keep the sunlight out and, uh, you know, just really, in terms of longevity, keeping it keeping it going for a long time. Um, and do they need to be up on a base and off the ground, or would it be better to just try and bury it? Anyway, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Thanks.
1: Yeah, it, to me, the best thing that you can do is give it a good paint job. Good quality black paint. It'll knock your algae problem out really easy. The other thing is you can get black plastic and just leave it in the cage and just wrap the whole thing up. I've seen a lot of people do that as well. Both of those work just fine. I've seen people build basically a wood structure around them. That works too, but it's it's costlier. It takes more effort, and wood eventually rots. Where if it you know if the paint wears off, you drain it, you pull it out of the cage again, and you you, you hit it with some more paint that, that's the best thing as far as burying it um, <clears throat> i i I am not a fan of burying the stored water uh because we go from having gravity feed to needing energy to get the water out of it. I mean, the other thing is, you know, you can put an IBC into the ground half or three-quarters of the way, especially, like, if you're making a sump in an aquaponic system. That, that makes perfect sense, you know. We want the sump as low as we can get it. It makes the whole system able to come down and be lower itself because there has to be a return point. But from a standpoint of, like, using it like a cistern, a true underground cistern, you can't really bury it. It'll collapse, it, it, I mean, it's it's they're not that strong. They're strong in containing the water pressure from coming out, but if you start putting you know weight down on top of it, they'll collapse. So you could only get it so far in the ground anyway. The the main reason you'd want to do that, the advantage of course would be you be able to insulate it. If you wanted to insulate it, what I would actually advise you to do is put it wherever you want to at ground level or even elevate a little bit, and put foam board insulation. Down and then wrap the whole thing in foam board insulation and then skin it in either wood or metal or something like that. The one that we have in my aquaponics system is actually got two layers of foam board insulation and it's skinned in metal. It's the same type of metal that they put on like cargo tra- trailers. And it's just basically we drilled holes and, and pushed in and screwed it to the metal frame. And that provides a great deal of insulation. But everybody thinks the ground is a good insulator, the ground is an energy sink when it comes to heat. You, when you put earth around something, yes, it insulates. But when something's making contact with the ground at the bottom, the ground pulls heat out of it. So you definitely, anything like that, you want to insulate what it's sitting on if you really want to insulate it. You know, the other thing, though, is it's an IBC. It's not that big. Um, you can get yourself a, uh, a stock tank heater. And throw it in there and, and that'll that'll get you through most of your mild freezes and, and, and your you know and even your somewhat moderate freezes as well. Also think about where it's located. And in general, like water storage like that probably is not as necessary in the winter, so at certain points you may just drain it. And again, since it's not that big of a container, if you have to drain it for a freeze and you want the water in reserve, when your freeze passes, throw a garden hose in it, fill it back up. I mean, it's three hundred gallons. Two hundred seventy to three hundred thirty gallons is all we're talking about there, right? Even a couple of them is only six hundred gallons. And I'd rather, I'd rather just uh, refill it from a hose if the if it was, if rain wasn't going to cooperate with me uh, than have like fittings blown out and busted and crack the whole thing and lose it or something like that. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another one.
0: Hey, Jack. This is awesome. Leo from Central Texas. And I'm calling about something that's exhausting me, and it's our community. I am tired. I will say that the majority of our community is supportive, uh, supportive of me, supportive of what I do. However, I'm getting exhausted. I won't lie. Uh, my job is stressful enough as it is especially me being someone who is counter to the flow within the department. I'm having a really hard time with our community. Um, I don't know where to draw the line anymore. Honestly, I I get a lot of crap anytime I post anything at all. The fact that I'm a cop, I'm a pig, I'm... I I honestly, I will say this, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, It's not necessarily the survival podcast community, but the, the libertarian anarchist community in general. I don't know what to do anymore. I'm someone who honestly tries my best every day. I try to do the best that I can and still within our own community I get called a sellout. I get called everything else. So, I don't know. This is just me venting. I don't, you can't really do anything about this. I don't know what you can do. But I'm thankful for what you do. And anyone else that calls you a cop wicker, I'll be honest. They're a piece of shit. Because you're not. And I'm not. So, Thank you for what you do. Thank you for everything that you've given to this community. Thank you for what you've given to us. And just do what you do. And I'm going
1: to try and do the same. So. God bless. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you feel, you're feel you feeling this way. I really am. I know who you are, and I know you're a good guy. I really do. And hopefully that counts for something. And you say you don't get this treatment out of our community. Well, spend more time with our community then, and communities like our own. I, I, I don't mean in any way that this is your fault. Let me say another thing. Listen to yesterday's show with Pat the Leo, um, and, and listen to the other side of the pain that you probably deal with, which is dealing with you know having to do a job that sometimes you have to do things you really don't want to do. And, and, and then realize another thing, too. In these... Libertarian anarchist communities that are online, especially Facebook, they are full of trolls. They're full of trolls, and they're full of what I call armchair anarchists. These are people that are purest assholes. You're either a hundred percent or you're no good. But they don't do shit, right? You look at and they have like five million posts on Facebook about their shit. Well, what are you doing if you're spending that much time on Facebook? Where where are you going? What have you done? Are you practicing agorism? You know, are you are you are you out building businesses that, that allow you to free yourself from the system? Are you teaching other people to do the same thing, or are you just running your mouth and spouting off? You know, and I mean, so one thing you have to do is when someone says something to you online and you don't know who they are, it needs to have about as much value to you as a blade of grass being cut by a lawnmower. It doesn't mean shit. And if you're, if you're being mistreated in a group, whether it's online or offline, stop associating with that group. I I think this is even bigger than your individual issue. That, that's a big thing that people need to understand in general. Like, you need to cut certain groups and certain people out of your life quick. I've heard every person I know that I really value their friendship, sooner or later I hear them give someone else that advice. You know, cut the people out of your life that are a drain. Cut the people out of your life that are parasites. If they're not a good, solid person, don't have anything to do with them. Be with people who are like you, who think like you, and have the morals and the integrity that you do. Because I think this is one of the things that that I want to make clear to the purest assholes in my audience, because I know some of you are there, because I hear... Dude, don't think you're the only one that hears this shit. If I showed you my inbox, it would it would blow you away the number of times a day... I'm told I have no right to use the word, you're an asshole, you, you name it, right? You're a statist, and I'm told I'm a statist constantly, you know? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bootlicker because I, I'm friendly with police officers. I don't give a shit. I don't care. I can delete your shit just as fast as I can delete an email about how to make my, my manhood larger, okay? and I, And I will remember it just as long. I'll remember I get a lot of emails like that, but I don't remember any real individual ones. Occasionally I put one aside so I can read it to the audience for entertainment purposes. I may read one to you you guys unrelated to this from a racist jackass on Monday just for your amusement. I've I've saved it. I don't know if I really want to read the little exchange or not, but it might might do it. So listen to the interview with Pat. I guess that will give you some And I'll tell you something else. Pat is, I know, on Zello. Dude, stop hanging out with people that are dicks. Get on Zello. I guarantee you no one's going to talk to you like that there. Get on the Survival, Pod, Pat, Survival Podcast Facebook forum, and I guarantee you no one's going to talk to you like that there. Get in the Survival Podcast forum, the a regular forum, and I guarantee you nobody's going to talk to you like that there because we'll ban their ass. And, and that's the thing you have to do. Is you have to start banning people like this from your life. You know, when I first started doing the show, I started getting attacked all the time. I had people emailing me such stupid shit, like, you have no right to be doing this. You never went to broadcasting school. What? And most of them I deleted, but I would occasionally get into pissing matches. I've gotten to like, if you don't bring value to me, delete, ban. Gone. And even on like places like Facebook, even if you're part of a group, you can get rid of individuals. You just block them. They can't see your comments and they can't respond to you. And they can't see you and they can't bother you. Right? So it's... Remember when we were kids and they said, like, you know, if they're not nice to you, just don't play with them. You're like, Mom, you don't understand. They're coming over and bothering me. Like, I I am ignoring them, but it's not possible. See, online, we actually can do that. And again, remember that most of these people are do-nothing, armchair anarchists, or they're trolls. Like, what you'll find is, if you find someone, even if they have a negative view of of police, like Larkin Rose, um... real negative view of police but he's actually doing something. He's not going to talk to you individually like you're a piece of shit. He may disagree but he's going to have respect for you because you have respect for him. And that's what you usually find with people that are actually doing anything. I mean the, the it, it's don't think it's limited this this trolling and this asshole um you know adult adolescent behavior. Don't think it's limited to your community and this community and this issue. When we started the Regenerative Agriculture Facebook group, because we were sick and tired of dealing with social justice warrior bullshit in another group, and we didn't cause them any trouble, we just walked away and set up our own group. We had about 20 idiots that set up fake accounts, that harassed. It took us about uh, almost a year of solid moderating to get rid of these people who apparently had nothing better to do than harass people that didn't want anything to do with them. So I wasn't even inside their group of shit. It was them coming out to bother us. And see, what you have to realize with this whole online thing is that these people will talk to you like they would never talk to your face. Because they're protected by distance and anonymity. And most of them are flipping cowards. Cow- I hear from cowards all the time. And again, cowards. When you send me your email it gets filed mentally in the same place and it gets filed digitally in the same place is the email about Cialis that got through my spam filter. I just don't care. And dude, that's how you have to be. And the way you start caring less about the people that don't see things your way, that don't appreciate you, that don't respect you, is you spend time with people that do. And you associate with people that do. And what makes it difficult for a a law enforcement officer that lives life in their heart as a libertarian or even all the way to the, form, the level of a voluntarist is that you don't have the typical camaraderie that other officers do because you hear your brother officers talking in certain ways and you go, no, we can't, and, and the, you can't form the connection. And that's one of the really one of the things that really helps people do the job you're doing is that brotherhood, that kindredship, and that can be a problem too because you cover each other's ass and you shouldn't. But at least it's there. And if you, you know, if nothing else, I've got these guys and these guys have me. And you probably feel a little lost in that. So then you turn to the community that you're, that you have that problem because of, because you agree with them and they shit on you. This is the way I look at it. You shit on me, you're dead to me. You as an individual, you're dead to me. But I'm not going to hold it against other anarchists. I'm not going to hold it against other voluntarists. I'm not going to hold it against other libertarians. If it's a permaculture thing, I'm not going to hold it against other permaculturists. It's you. You are you are an asshole. You have no value to me. From what I can see, you have no value to the planet or mankind. Therefore, you're dead to me. And again, if it's a Facebook issue, ban. Problem solved. It's that easy. Don't let it get you down. Hook up with the people in this community. And rock on. Because I hear from people all the time with similar issues. You know, every time I try to reach out further into the anarchist community, I find a bunch of communists. Stop talking communists. They're not really anarchists. You can't have communism without a state. You can't have anarchism with a state. Therefore, you're not an anarchist. Piss off. Be gone. I don't care. And know this. Libertarian communities online, Facebook and otherwise, anarchist communities, voluntarist communities, etc., Right leaning political communities, left, they're all full of trolls. They're all, they exist for no purpose other than cause dissent. And they'll even take the party line and attack those just a little off of it to cause that dissent because they live for it. I don't understand the mind of a person like that. I do know they're probably yelling for their mom to bring them a peanut butter and banana sandwich even though they're 35 years old down in the basement. So don't worry about them. Let's rock on. Another call.
2: Howdy, Jack. Karim from Austin. Long time no uh, no speak. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. I was listening to a podcast um, from the This Week in Tech Network called This Week in Startups. And in their most recent episode, they were talking about um, our Treasury Secretary talking about uh, or having said that, you know, automation is 50 to 100 years away from replacing human jobs. And it was very interesting to hear the host's opinions on automation and the ramifications of it because their reaction to it was, you know, 7 to 15 years out. And I guess their interpretation of the ramifications of it are kind of like what the prepping, the, the shadier side of the prepping community was selling for 2012, which is, you know, mayhem and riots and civil war, Um, and it's very interesting to hear the technology community have that fearful of an opinion of what automation is going to cause, especially considering they're considered more, um, I guess, in, you know, air quotes, mainstream. Anyway, I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Um, Talk to you soon. Thanks for doing the show and everything you do, man. Bye.
1: So I, I I think you do need to understand the mentality of anybody that's behind a microphone to a degree because it's something I struggled with early on, and I had I had to learn to control it. Um, you are, by your nature, a contrarian. No one gets on the, uh, the microphone, especially in the podcasting world or t- alternative media world or something like that, where you have complete free reign and goes, Do you know what? everything that everybody in authority and power and any level of respect says is true and everything's super and we should believe everything they say. Because what a boring-ass freaking podcast that would be, right? So you're immediately contrarian. So when you get this high government official saying something like, it's 50 to 100 years out. Well, you're a moron. 50 to 100 years out till what? Till it's 100% robots doing everything? Because that's not what we're talking about. Um, So what can often happen then is you're part educator and part entertainer, and sometimes people go too far. And part of it is that entertainer component in it, and they they maybe are just, because I didn't listen to it, I didn't have time. I checked out the site. I wasn't totally blown away, to tell you the truth. Um, But is there maybe some fear-mongering starting up in this world? I I think maybe, and part of the reason I chose to play your call, Karim, is because I want to make sure I'm not part of it. When I tell you it is the single biggest threat to the economics of our nation and the world and the developed world going forward over the next 20 years, I am not underselling it. But that doesn't mean it's all gloom and doom and it doesn't mean we're all going to die and it doesn't mean it's going to be like Y2K was supposed to be or the 2012 thing and people blowing up or whatever. It's just, no. Um, I think it's going to be a slow cancerous erosion of the core of employment and... Your continuous loss of jobs without them being replaced, and it's going to require entrepreneurship and 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 changing the dynamics of our economy. And many people won't be prepared for it. Many people will be unwilling to accept it. And a lot of people are going to get hurt. But a lot of people get hurt all the time. But it, it's no doubt the single biggest economic disruptor in the next two, three, four decades. I actually on some levels agree – I don't remember who you said he was, the Secretary of Commerce or whatever the hell – to a degree on the 50 to 100-year timeline, if you're talking about Jetsons, right – you get home and the chair rolls out and grabs you by the ass and picks you up and wheels you into the house and you work at a place where you really just watch things happen because I guess they made a job for you out of nothing and you fly around in a little spaceship that drives itself and your dog gets a walk on a on a treadmill and you, I mean you know like if you're talking to that level to where everything everything is automated. There's literally no work for anybody outside of some specialization or some creativity um then yeah you're 50 to 100 years out. You know every single vehicle on the road is autonomous. No one owns a car because it doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah, you're 50 to 100 years out. But if you're talking about, you know, services existing that are are taking away cab driver jobs uh, beyond Uber because it's taking Uber jobs away too. You're talking about things being delivered to your house with remote vehicles by Amazon with no human involved. You're talking five years. You're talking about major disruptions to the educational system as online education becomes more powerful. Do you know how you know that's happening? Because almost every public education system in every state has some version of their schooling available online for homeschoolers now. They're, they're getting out ahead of it. They're trying to compete with the private market before the private market takes over. They're not going to be able to. The private market is going to innovate too many different options too quickly. And, and what does that do when, you know, it, forget my doom and gloom prediction that in 20 years you won't see hardly a public school left. Let's say it eliminates 20% of the need for public schools. What if you got rid of 20% of all the educators and administrators in public schools in the United States of America and said, go find something else to do? How many people is that? What if only half of retail is affected by it? So half the retail jobs in America are gone in 20 years. Does it mean that, you know, it's like the sun-going supernova and everybody's screaming and zombies eating, you know, children and puppies and cats living together and having puppy kittens? No. But it means major, major shift. That's what's coming. So I don't know what these guys really think. I, I think that you might get more and more of this. But what we need really is more of an awareness of what's going on. And there's a whole generation of people that are about my age and older and a few that are a little bit younger that grew up listening to this last generation talk about it that are going, oh, this again. Oh, this again. Because trust me, in the 1960s and 70s, they were telling people, you know, robots are going to do all the work by 1985. So people just don't, they just don't buy into it this time. But most of these people are old enough that they haven't paid attention to what the hell's been going on. And they don't realize that like half of what they were told was going to happen has happened now. They're insulated from it. People don't realize that a lot of the jobs that they think during the recession that went overseas, they didn't go overseas, they're gone. And you know what? When they were leaving back in 2008, I was on the air telling you, they're going to go away and they're never coming back. Those jobs are gone forever. And today they're gone forever. They're not coming back. The company that took 30,000 jobs out of this country to a foreign you know, offshore is not employing 30,000 people. They're employing five. They do the same work 30,000 people used to do here, using automation. And if they repatriate the, the company and they bring the money back, which I think is what Trump's trying to do, is get them to bring their money back by not taxing them at 40%. Because if you're taxing me at 40%, I would leave too. But when they come back, they're not bringing the jobs back. They're bringing a fraction of the jobs back that left. Because the jobs are gone. And they're going to continue to dwindle. And you could give people all the degrees you want. There's only so many jobs that are going to be available. So we have to figure out other ways to run an economy. And the people that can, the people that adapt, the people that realize the emerging economy, the emerging economies... The sharing economies. They're the ones that are going to adapt the fastest, profit the most, and benefit the most. That's my message out of this. I hope that doesn't sound like gloom and doom to anyone. It's gloom and doom for some, opportunity for others. Let's take another one.
6: Hey Jack, this is Eric from Sacramento. I just recently listened to your episode on 20 things that kids should know how to do by the time they're 14. I just want to say I love the episode. I am a 32 year old father of three. I have two boys ages eight and six and then I have a daughter that's a year and a half. And I just want to let you know that I'm pretty much taking care of that list with my boys. Uh, my boys know how to start fires with a nine volt battery, still wool, using flint, steel, uh, the whole nine yards, um, teaching my kids how to grill steaks on the barbecue and how to cook different things. Both of them, my boys have a very keen interest in firearms. My oldest are currently learning to build an AR-15 together. Uh, my boys know how to use tools. I bought them a four by four and a box of nails when they were probably about four and, and six and this let them have at it pounding nails into the four by four and they're there for three hours just doing that. My oldest will help me build workbenches and did both of them. I've shown them how to use shovels, how to mow the grass and how to do other things. Um, you know, I'm a millennial and I don't want my kids to be like the stereotypical millennial. Uh, thanks, Jack, for everything that you do. Thanks.
1: Bye. I just want to say good for you and thank you. And I want you parents out there to understand that like, if you do this for your kids, do you know the advantage your kids are going to have over their contemporaries when they come into their own in their 20s? Because as much as we rag on the the millennials that are the 20-somethings and early 30-somethings of today, do you know what it's going to be like when their kids grow up? I'm talking 15 years from now in the middle of all this shit we just talked about, and they can't do anything. They can't do shit. They'll need a robot to tie their damn shoes by then, I think. But if, if you have that young Renaissance man or Renaissance woman that I talked about in that show on the fourteen things or the twenty things I know by your fourteen or whatever number it was I came up with, um, you know, then they're going to be able to adapt. I, I think back to when I was a kid, and I just don't don't think kids have it anymore. I remember this one time. All I wanted to do was go fishing this day. That's all I wanted to do. The place I wanted to go to fishing was about five miles away, and I'd get there on a bicycle. And, uh, you know, my grandmother came with all kinds of crap that needed to be done. And uh, it wasn't even one of those things where you have to do it at this point, it was one of those things where, like, I just helped, I was in my my, you know, mid teens. And I wasn't living there, and it wasn't like a chore list. It was more like, I need this done, and I need that done. And just, like, it's the decent thing to do. Your grandmother needs this stuff done. Get it done for her. And, like, all kinds of shit went wrong, and I went out to get my bike, and the freaking tire was flat, and I had to put a tube on it. And I ended up about a 100 yards from where I would lock my bike up, where this railroad tracks went across to this creek that I used to fish. And it starts pouring rain. And just as it starts pouring rain, the bike chain snaps. Not throws it where it's easy to fix. It snaps. So now I'm in the pouring rain with all my gear, pushing my bike last 150 yards and wondering how I'm going to get home. And I remember what I thought is, the more work it is, the, the, the likelier it is it's going to be worth doing today. And I took that old bike and I chained it up like anybody's going to leave with it now anyway. And I had one of the most fantastic days of fishing in my life. And the nearest payphone was about a mile from where this location was. So I pushed my bike back there. And I started making phone calls at the end of the day so I could find someone that could come get me, throw the bike in the back of their vehicle, and get it to home so I could fix it. And I don't think that's a story of triumph. I don't think I did anything noteworthy. The reason I tell the story is because I just wonder how many kids would do that today. How many kids would ride a bike five miles to go fishing in the first place today, let alone deal with all the crap I dealt with that day? And, like, that was a typical day. That wasn't like, this is the worst day of my life. That was typical. I was a poor kid in the cold region. Shit went wrong all the time. Stuff broke all the time. You had to fix stuff all the time. You had to figure out how to get something done with nothing all the time. Or you didn't get anything. And no one gave a shit that you didn't get anything. No one's like, man, it's, it's, it's hard to be you. Here's a toy, Johnny. It didn't work that way. And I just keep looking back at this, and I'm going, I'm not that freaking old yet. I mean, I look at the, the gray hairs in my head and on my chest, and I think, you're getting old, dude. But I don't think I'm that old when it comes to that long ago, that things really have changed that much. But just remember, you guys, that are the older group of millennials that are raising the next, whatever we're going to call them, Generation Y, whatever it is. Because they're going to be Generation Y because they're going to be like, why the hell didn't my parents teach me this shit? And maybe that's what we should be calling the Millennials. Generation, Generation Millennial, maybe should be Generation Y. Came after X, right? We just skipped it and called it Millennials because it sounded cool. But maybe that's what they should be. They should be Generation Y because it's, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. That you don't know shit. That you don't know how to do things. That you're not resilient. It's not your fault. And those of you that are, I'm not talking to you, don't get upset, don't get butt hurt, right? If you get butt hurt about me talking about your contemporaries because you think I'm lumping you in with them, you probably belong with them. You sh- you should be unbutt hurtable over something like this, right? So, like but the, those of you that are in that boat and you're 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 paddling your way back to shore and getting out of the problem, like that's really what, you know, generation Y be why the hell didn't we learn these things? And I I'll, I'll kind of try to give you the continuity of what I think happened today. The Boomers were the parents of the Xers, my generation. And we, by and large, were the the parents of the Millennials. Okay, My son is a Millennial, for instance. And we were the latchkey kids. That's what they called us, the latchkey kids. We raised ourselves. And we didn't have parents teach us stuff. And we also didn't have our parents doing stuff for us all the time. I mean, like, the fun stuff. We didn't have that. As a generation, I'm not saying all of us didn't, but I'm saying, by and large, the majority of us, we were from two working parent households. Parents worked late. Things were not as interconnected as they are today. Like, you either had friends or you didn't. You didn't have an extra hundred friends online that you didn't really know that made you feel good, right? You had to deal with shit. And so we did learn how to how to do everything. We learned how to fix a bike. We learned how to use tools, We learned how to start fires and not burn the woods down, even if we got close to doing it a couple times. We learned how to hustle up somebody to get us beer when we were 15 years old. We learned all this stuff. We learned it completely apart from the generation that gave us life. As we had kids, we thought, I'm not going to do this to my kids. I'm going to be involved in their lives. But we overcompensated to making everything easy. And instead of saying, instead of like saying, he's not going to need to know how to fix a bike because I'm just going to give him a new one, we should have been saying, I'm going to get his ass a busted ass bike and teach him how to fix it so we have that memory together. And I'm not saying all of us, because that's the kind of shit I did, right? But as a, as a, as as a demographic, as a majority, we made it too easy. And I even say to myself and my wife and my son sometimes, my biggest mistake was I made your life too easy. And if you guys know me, he wasn't that easy, right? Luckily for him. But I think, like if the hard ass I am, if I made his life too easy, what what did most people do? They screwed your kids up. So you got this generation walking around, many of them with no way, no, no no skills, no knowledge, no whatever. But you know what? You can learn anything today. Teach your kids this stuff. Don't make your kids' life too easy. Don't make it too hard either. Find a balance. And. Remember the words of the song, every generation blames the one before. And in some cases, every generation's right. But in the end, for every generation, it's your problem. Whether you cause it or not, it's your problem. And that means you need to be your own answer. Teaching your kids how to do stuff. Even if you have to learn as you go, don't worry, they won't know you don't know what you're doing. You'll be better at it than them. And together you'll learn. And that will build priceless memories. And maybe this next generation can have the more solid relationship that was lacking than the last one. I've always said I believe the millennials can turn into the hero generation if they'll step up and make it happen. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did and you'd like to support us, one of the ways that you can support us is by doing your shopping online through tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com and there's a link there. You go, go over to Amazon from there. You see their deals of the day. And then you just search for, like if you're going to buy something today, just go to tspaz first and then go to Amazon and then buy what you were going to buy on Amazon anyway and you support our show. It's that freaking simple. It's that easy. But I also put up an item of uh, item for review every day as well. And I've got a good one for you today. I, I kind of thought of it this last week when I was doing a show and I talked about cooking. And I was talking about making an oyster mushroom chicken soup. I thought, you know, I should put those mushrooms up. I found these mushrooms about a year ago. They're made by Mushroom House. They're dried oyster mushrooms. And a pound of them is like 16 bucks. That might sound expensive. $16 a pound for mushrooms. They're dehydrated but they, they, when you dehydrate dehydrate mushrooms, they go down about a quarter of their weight. So that means that they're about four pounds of fresh. Maybe a little more, but just say four. So now you're looking at like $4 a pound. That's pretty damn good. And they store well. So preppers, come on, guys. Yeah, you know, supposed to have a deep pantry. It's a great item for your deep pantry. The other thing is, like some mushrooms I prefer fresh. And a lot of mushrooms, I'm like, they're good fresh. And they're also, okay, deep dried. But there's only a few mushrooms that I think actually are better dehydrated or you know dried out. And that and oyster mushrooms is one of those. Oyster mushrooms are good when they're fresh, but they're really soft and they're easy to overcook and they don't have a good strong flavor. I don't know what happens when you dehydrate them, you rehydrate them, they they get some firmness to them, they get a little more body to them, and they get a lot more intense flavor. So I put out a recipe today and I thought what I was gonna do is I was gonna put the recipe out, I developed two of these. And one is like, you know, making it with a fresh piece of chuck or something like that. And uh, I also developed one that we've tried. It came out really good uh, using all storable items. I thought that would be great. We don't talk enough practical preparedness sometimes, I think, because we've put so much information about that out in the past. So if we're going to have a deep pantry and we're going to be able to, you know, say we're going to survive on this if times get tough, then we should be able to use it in rotator food. So here's how you here's how you make this. You need about two cups of dried oyster mushroom, whole, not packed. And I'm telling you, a pound of these is a lot. It's not very much out of your package. So just about two cups of them. And then you need about 24 ounces of canned beef. Uh, I have a link to Kirkland canned beef, which is really good stuff. But if you have a Costco near you uh, and you have a membership, you're probably better off getting it there. But I have a link to it on uh, on Amazon in case you want to see it. About four to six cups of water, depending on what you end up needing. And then you need uh, two teaspoons of better-than-bullion beef flavoring. I use organic. Or a couple beef bouillon cubes, one or the other. Two cups of dehydrated carrots. I like slices. Uh, one cup of dehydrated celery. And one cup of dehydrated onions. One can of crushed tomatoes. Some dried parsley, thyme, and rosemary. And fresh chives or green onions, if you have them growing. Because then you're not cheating on this prepper thing, right? And if you if you don't have them, you can just omit those or use some dehydrated chives. You need salt and pepper to taste. All of that stores, or you growing in your backyard. So here's the procedure. You put water into a large cooking pot and add your mushrooms. You turn the water on medium heat and heat until it's steaming hot but not boiling. By then, your mushrooms should be soft enough to work with. Use a strainer. Strain your mushrooms out. It's real simple because they float. Now add your dehydrated vegetables and a big pinch each of rosemary and thyme, and add two big pinches of parsley. Bring it to a full boil. While you wait for that, run some cool water over your mushrooms so they don't burn your fingers. Shake them dry in your strainer and cut them on a cutting board into thin strips, sort of like you're making mushroom noodles, right? Because you'll see there's a, a real kind of good body to these oyster mushrooms when they've been dehydrated. We, I mean, we could call the call zucchini noodles zoodles, so maybe these are like moodles, right? Okay, then you add them back to the pot. When it comes to a boil, add the bullion or better than bullion and start to dissolve. Now add a can of the crushed tomatoes. By the way, Costco has some awesome organic crushed tomatoes in cans. Just, just awesome. And they're cheap. They're cheaper than uh, commercial, regular uh, canned tomatoes in a grocery store. And then you simmer them until the mushrooms and vegetables are to your liking. right? So when you when you try that mushroom and go, it's got enough bite to it yet, yeah, but it's, 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 it's done. I, I'm happy where it is. When you get there, um, just add your canned beef. And if you're using the Costco stuff, I recommend you use two cans of it. and uh, and the broth with it, because it's good flavoring. Don't use a variety of canned beef that's with gravy to make this. That will mess everything up. Bring it back to a full simmer to heat the beef through. That's it. Serve it with a topping of fresh chives or green onions. And If you don't have any, you can use dehydrated chives or nothing at all. And then salt and pepper to taste. You can get some pepper while you're cooking this if you want. Don't salt this until the end, though, because you've got bouillon or better than bouillon in it. You've got canned meat. There's a lot of salt going on already. All right, that is a great recipe, and you can do a lot more with these mushrooms. For the full write-up on them, see tspaz.com. Click the link to see all of our reviews. You'll see the most recent one if you've listened to this show today. Uh, You can always find all of our reviews at tspaz.com. And again, if you click the top link that says see the deals of the day, it doesn't matter what you buy. You can buy any damn thing you want there, uh, including things you were going to buy anyway, and you will be supporting us as the affiliate that referred you to amazon.com. All right. Next up, let's talk about the song of the day. Um, I wasn't real excited about the song of the day at first when I saw what it was because it wasn't like really a big favorite of mine from this time. And I mean, this is the time I was in high school, right? Nineteen eighty-eight. I guess I was, a, uh, I was a I was a I was a junior in high school in nineteen eighty-eight, and. Uh, so I have real good memories of the music scene from that time because all we did was hang out in the woods and fish and camp and drink beer and listen to music, run around in cars and listen to music. I mean, you get it. Like everywhere you go, there's music. We were hanging out at somebody's house, we were either watching Monty Python or listening to music. But I realized something. Like a lot of the music we were listening to was like 10 years old at the time. It was like from '78, it was, like the Eagles and uh, you know Meatloaf and stuff like that. Um, just an interesting group of friends, I guess, I had that kind of thought like I did. Like I said, stick with people that think like you do. But I heard the music was on the radio stations, especially, like, the Top 40 stuff and all, because Possible, Pennsylvania, we pretty much have, like, three radio stations, and if you went over a mountain and turned a corner, one turned into another on the same frequency. I'm, I'm dead serious about that. Like, you're at you know, 96.8, I think it was what it was, and when you went over Blue Mountain and came down the other side, like, it's, it switched to a totally different radio station because the mountain blocked, and they were on the same frequency. Uh, So there wasn't a lot of choices. And uh, so I remember this song. It's called Roll With It by Steve Winwood. And when I heard his name, the first thing I thought of was a a song that he had a mega hit with that was called Valerie. And that one bugged me. It it was one of the songs that got in your head even if you hated it. You couldn't get rid of it. And they played it all the time. This one was good. But, you know, because it really didn't hit me at that age, it kind of just fell aside for me. And I really never understood what the song was about. What this song is about is what I talk about all the time, making it through life. You know, roll with it. If you actually listen to the lyrics and you look at the lyrics in this song, there's some, you know, romantic connection thing going on with a gal in here. But the real message of it isn't roll with it the way we think of it. We think of roll with it like, you know, if life's shitty, you just kind of go along and get along and you deal with the fact that life's shitty. Now, roll with it here is about, like, you roll with it and figure out how to get what you want. You get through life, you make the most of life, and that makes it a much better song than I ever thought it was. And I want to point out that one of the reasons we started doing the Song of the Day was so that I could do that for you with music. I didn't think it would happen to me very often that I'd find a song that I didn't realize, you know. But I know I love music, and there's so many songs that I'm like, I talk to people about. I don't really like that song. I'm like, you know what that song's about? And they're like, no. And you like explain the lyrics, to them, and they're like, holy shit, that's a great song. I had one guy when uh, when I played Southern Cross by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He um, said never. Care. He was in a blog comic, said never cared for the song, never really paid attention to it. And then he, he, you know, he he wrote the last two stanzas of the song, and he said I, I could never write something that awesome. That's that's mastery of, of lyrics, and, and understood something at a higher level. And I think that's that's an important thing with music because musicians are artists, and songs are poetry set to set to, to beat, is what they are. And a lot of times we can look at songs like some of the ones we've had this week and say the direct message, while valid and absolutely true, is one thing. But if you're creating true art, then it can mean different things to different people and be valuable to both groups. Well, I hope you take away from this one. Roll with it, but that doesn't mean give in. Roll with it till you can figure it out and then achieve what you're looking for. That's what we all should be doing if we want to live that better life. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.